This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of February 13th, 2023, here are some top stories. Attorneys for the Hobbs administration say more than $200 million in American Rescue Plan grants issued before former Governor Doug Ducey left office were done so illegally, Ben Giles reports. Hobbs' top attorney found 19 grants provided to 16 organizations were illegally issued without a competitive solicitation process. Sean Behrens is Hobbs' senior counsel. He said all organizations that received illegal grants were notified on Tuesday and will have a chance to reapply under a legal grant-making process. We didn't have a choice in the matter. Uh, in the Hobbs administration, we follow the law. A former aide to Ducey said the grants were issued by the book and accused Hobbs of playing politics with federal funds. Other grants issued by Ducey are being reviewed to determine if they meet spending requirements under the American Rescue Plan, a package of COVID-19 relief dollars signed by President Biden in 2021. Ben Giles... KJZZ News, Phoenix. In science news. The Colorado River has been in severe decline for years, in part because a historic drought has reduced rainfall and snowpack, things happening above the river. But what about below the river? As Pratham Dalal reports, the groundwater lurking beneath the Earth's surface also plays a big role in the river's levels. Groundwater's relationship to rivers and streams is more circular than many people may realize. Fred Tillman is a research hydrologist with the Arizona Water Science Center at the U.S. Geological Survey. If there's a stream that is flowing all year long, meaning after it is rain and after the water has run off into the stream, then that stream is being fed by groundwater. So that groundwater and surface water interaction is a huge, important component of perennial year-round stream flow. But not all groundwater is constantly circulating. Tillman says some groundwater can be stored for thousands of years. So once the water is pumped, it takes a lot of effort to get water back into the ground. Kathleen Ferris is with the Kyle Center for Water Policy at Arizona State University. So in Arizona, most of our groundwater is uh, ancient. In other words, it was physically stored underground in past geologic ages, eight to 9,000 years ago. It is not renewable. So once you pump it, you, you have basically used it. In order to recharge these aquifers, water is injected into the ground artificially. A whole agency has even been created for it, the Arizona Water Banking Authority. Where they will put that excess Colorado River water out in these detention basins and allow it to infiltrate down, essentially recharge the groundwater system there. So in that way, they're banking. They've been banking that water now for some cases for decades. The Banking Authority was created about 25 years ago. Through 2021, it has stored over 4 million acre-feet for cities throughout Arizona. The agency oversees 28 storage facilities that can recharge aquifers. And, as Ferris says, groundwater maintenance affects more than just water supplies. It affects overall land composition. Groundwater holds open the pores between the rocks and the gravel in which it is stored. And if you take it out, then... Those rocks and gravel collapse into into each other. Sinking land or subsidence can damage critical infrastructure, such as sewer pipes and canals. And so you have that compaction, and it will cause the earth to actually sink. 
In 2017, the State Department of Water Resources found that 3,400 square miles around Arizona were at risk of sinking. In Wilcox, just east of Tucson, there is an electric pole with a sign marking how much the land has subsided. The markings run the entire length of the pole, starting from the top in 1969 down to where it is now. Land near Luke Air Force Base, just west of Phoenix, has already dropped more than 19 feet since 1950. Cynthia Campbell is with the city of Phoenix. Phoenix geologically is kind of a bowl, so we're kind of at the bottom of the bowl. The likelihood of of having those kinds of impacts in the city of Phoenix and in the service area, we would really, really have to be pumping a lot of groundwater. The state did not begin actively controlling any of its groundwater usage until the landmark Groundwater Management Act of 1980 was passed. That created five management zones in urban areas, including one in Phoenix. Each zone was asked to reduce its reliance on groundwater by 2025 to a safe yield level. That's when the amount of water being withdrawn is the same as the amount being replenished. Campbell says since the 1980 Act, Phoenix has altered its water usage strategy. So we completely changed the system around. We decommissioned a lot of wells. Um, We gave up using groundwater almost in total. And today, we would consider ourselves a surface water system. According to Campbell, Phoenix receives 58% of its water from the Salt and Verde Rivers, and only 40% from the Colorado River. Of that 40%, only about 2% comes from groundwater. Campbell says that's a negligible amount because it nearly equals the amount the city needs to draw from wells to keep them operational. Ferris says this number is a low number, but it is important to keep an eye on. Something, you know, relying on groundwater for only 2% of your water supply is pretty darn good. But as soon as Colorado River shortages hit, uh, more and more groundwater will be pumped. And with Arizona already slated to lose 21% of its water allocation from the Colorado River next year, water managers are already having to adjust. Breath on the Wall, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In Fronteras News. Overfishing is one of the greatest threats to marine life and to people who depend on our oceans for their livelihoods. Now one community in Sonora, Mexico, is tackling the problem by establishing fishing refuge areas in the bay where they live and work on the Gulf of California. From our Fronteras desk, Kendall Blust brings us this story. Water laps against a dock in Ejiabampo, a coastal town on the southern edge of Sonora. It's a windy, overcast day, and a few raindrops spatter the waves as we load into Jesus Antonio Reyes' small blue-and-white fishing boat. We motor out into the choppy water toward a vast mass of green leaves just off the coast, a mangrove forest in the Estero Esopawi. Part of a major wetland system off the Gulf of California, it provides important habitat for fish and shellfish, marine mammals, and migratory birds. It's also one of two fishing refuges in the bay, says Gilberto Diaz, a biologist with the conservation group Nature and Culture International. As we approach the mangroves, the boat brushes up against the dense foliage and long, woody roots reaching down into the water. Diaz says they act as a nursery, nurturing new life. It's why seasoned fishermen chose this site as a refuge. 
Everyone in Ejiabampo has felt the impacts of overfishing and declining production, Reyes says, and they want to act before things get dire and fish are too depleted to easily rebound. He says fish like red and green snapper thrive in the mangrove's tangled roots. Protecting this area gives them a chance to reproduce before they can be caught, increasing their populations and benefiting local families. A second refuge was chosen for its deep waters where clams, mollusks, and other shellfish can grow undisturbed by divers. This bay is a beauty, says fisherman Miguel Zavala, extending as far as the eye can see beyond the southern border of Sonora and into neighboring Sinaloa. The idea to protect it, he says, started with Chuy. He's talking about Jesus Nieblas, a local biologist who first raised the possibility in 2016. Nieblas grew up in Ejiabampo, spending summers there with his grandparents. Those ties, he said, built trust. Over the years, he saw life in the community change, becoming harder and harder to make ends meet as a growing number of fishermen competed for a diminishing supply of seafood. Still, Ajilbampo Bay was healthy, and if species were allowed to reproduce undisturbed, he felt confident that their populations would rebound. The first step was getting fishermen to take ownership of their bay, he says, and the interventions needed to protect it. It took months of meetings with the seven fishing cooperatives working on the Sonoran side of the bay. But fishermen were seeing the same things he was. Before long, they'd agreed to set aside some 300 hectares of protected area where fishing would be banned. They put up signs and took turns monitoring. Biologists, they'd tell him, we saw some guys fishing over there, but we talked to them and they cleared out. The project is only five years old, but within a year, the difference was clear. Diving with some of the local fishermen, Niebla says he was shocked by how quickly the number of fish had shot up. In 2017, they applied for federal protected status in hopes of opening the door for more resources and greater enforcement in the refuge areas. They're still waiting for a response. Fishermen gather under a large ramada outside Savala's home, filing up one by one to a wooden table where Diaz calls out the names of those who've been monitoring the refuge. Miguel Ayala is local director of Nature and Culture International, which supports the project by paying fishermen a small monthly sum for their work in the refuge. They also provide technical support, gathering data to help quantify the impacts the fishing refuges are having on the bay. Hard numbers, Ayala says, could strengthen their bid for a federally recognized protected area. It's slow work, he says, but they aren't throwing in the towel. Zavala, who's been working on the project from the start, says the fishing refuges are about long-term results, and people here are willing to work as long as it takes. Because they want to keep fishing, he says, and they want to make sure there's something left for future generations. Kendall Blust, KJZ News, reporting from Ajiabampo, Sonora. In business news. About 2,000 shipping containers used by former Governor Doug Ducey to keep people out of Arizona could soon be used to house people. From our business desk, Christina Estes reports. In late December, after the Biden administration filed a lawsuit, Ducey agreed to remove metal containers that had been double-stacked to fill gaps along the border in Yuma and Cochise counties. 
His successor, Governor Katie Hobbs, has a new idea. We've developed a plan to offer these surplus containers to local jurisdictions and nonprofits uh, to help expand our inventory of affordable housing and shelter. Hobbs made the announcement last week during an event to highlight alternative housing in Phoenix. These are completely off-grid. There's no power hooked up to any of these containers. The repurposed shipping containers designed and built by Brian Stark's company are powered by the sun during the day and lithium batteries at night. It doesn't feel like you're walking into a steel container. It looks like a modern home with lots of light. Each 400-square-foot unit includes a kitchenette with built-in cabinets, a full-size refrigerator, microwave, and hot plate. There's a bed and seating area and a bathroom with a toilet that incinerates waste. Every hundred flushes, you empty the ashtray. It's completely benign. There's no smell. Stark says the toilet saves 2,000 gallons of water per person per year. The homes have water filtration and storage and a mini-split system for heating and air conditioning. The technology is totally different way of thinking. Each unit, called a spark box, repurposes about 12,000 pounds of steel. The containers are cut by robots salvaged from the Mercedes factory in Detroit. Mayor Kate Gallego said advanced construction techniques are vital. It's a real challenge for us right now in the Valley. We have 185,000 units that are permitted and zoned but not built yet. We have real supply chain challenges, labor shortages and more. And so having new tools to get projects done more quickly is an amazing opportunity for us. It takes about a month to build, deliver, and install a spark box and costs about $200,000. Stark's company has built shipping container apartments downtown and in Tempe, and he sees a market for shipping container homes in backyards for people to offer as rentals and for adults who want or need to be close to family or friends while living independently. He says city and state leaders need to get on board. The Times have, have found us meaning everyone that's in office right now and everyone that is on the private side trying to do something about sustainability need to come together. Governor Hobbs said housing affordability is a top concern not just for renters. But also those in our business community who need a workforce to hire as the cost of living here in Arizona threatens to hold back retaining or attracting the talent that they need. The Arizona Department of Housing paid Steel and Spark more than a million dollars to build three homes, each with a bed and bath, and two units without. When the Spark Box display at 2nd Street and Roosevelt ends in late May, the department will give the units to a nonprofit to provide housing for those in need. As for the 2,000 shipping containers removed from the border, Tucson and Phoenix have expressed interest in taking some. Logistics are still being worked out. A spokesperson for the governor's office says the process will maximize the public good as well as the financial return to the state. Christine Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And you can find photos and a video of shipping container homes by looking for this story on our website, kjzz.org. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. An online dating expert dives deep into the world of digital dating. Here's Lauren Gilger from the show. 
Dating has changed a lot in recent years, from the onset of dating websites to the world of dating apps today. Let's just say it's not your mother's dating scene anymore. Well, our next guest is an online dating expert. Liesl Sharabi is the author of the Dating in the Digital Age column for Psychology Today, as well as an assistant professor at ASU's Hugh Down School of Human Communication. And she's out with a new study just in time for Valentine's Day that dives deep into the world of digital dating. In it, she surveyed people who had met their significant others online and found that a whole lot of them were in fulfilling relationships, one as they felt were stronger than would have been if they had met the old-fashioned way. So much for the meet-cute. I spoke with Sharabi more about it. I was really interested in this study that came out about 10 years ago now in 2013 by John Cassiopo and his colleagues that was looking at marriages that formed online and comparing them to relationships that started offline. And what they found with this large sample of people who met in various places on and off the internet was that people who met online were a little bit more satisfied with their marriages, and they were also a little less likely to end up separated or divorced. And so to me, this just raised so many questions of why would those differences exist? And so they speculated, but that really wasn't the focus of their study. And also in the past 10 years, so much has changed when it comes to how we meet people, particularly through online dating platforms, because in 2013, that was also around the time that Tinder launched and Mm. kind of changed everything. So I wanted to answer this why question, like what makes some relationships that are initiated through these platforms successful? So also you hear a lot of stories from people who have these terrible experiences. They get burnt out with online dating. They get frustrated, like they're catfished. And so it also makes you wonder, like, does this work for people? And so I was curious to talk to the success stories and the people who were able to find love on these platforms. So you're looking at the sort of long-term outcomes here in a way that probably hasn't been done before. Do we know how pervasive this is? Like how often marriages or long-term relationships are the result of online dating at this point? Yes. We know that online dating is now the number one way that people meet a romantic partner in the U.S. And the Pew Research Center just put out some new data last week, actually, that showed that one in 10 um, people in the U.S. who are in a relationship met online. And if you look at people under the age of 30, that number goes to one in five. Wow. So this is incredibly common. And it's interesting because when I talk to people in my study some of them said they wouldn't tell everybody necessarily how they met. Like <laughs> yeah. there's still the stigma. Um, but we know from research that it's very common. Well, the stigma is probably changing. Okay, so let's talk about some of the couples that you studied here. You talked to 50 couples that were successful in this sense. And they talked about sort of the ways in which they felt like online dating made their relationships more successful, which almost seems counterintuitive because of those kinds of stigmas like you talked about. So describe for us what they had to say. Yeah, so I was interested in knowing how their relationship progressed from when they first met through the site or the app that they were using all the way through marriage. And also, what are the implications of that process now? Like, how do they still see that affecting their relationship, if at all? Mm. And so something I found with these individuals was that they felt like online dating gave them a really solid foundation for the relationship that was different than what they would have had if they would have met offline. 
They talked about being able to get to know someone as a person before introducing that physical component to the relationship. So you spend all of that time in the very beginning just talking and getting to know somebody mm-hmm. and you're not physical at all. Like it's just this process of disclosing and building a relationship that they felt gave them a solid foundation. Also having access to a larger pool of partners and feeling like they were choosing somebody versus life and circumstance kind of making that decision for them. So they felt like they were more active participants in, you know, getting to pick who they spent their life with rather than having that decision kind of made for them through Mm. circumstance. It makes a lot of sense. And what about like, does the the app that you use, the site that you use matter? There are a lot of these really niche sites, right? Like Farmers Only or J-Date, right? Like, does that help or or are we sort of self-selecting? I think there is some self-selection that happens there where I kind of think of them like modern single spars, like every platform <laughs> has its own crowd, like it has its own culture and people bounced around to different ones. So there weren't, from the people I spoke to, they weren't just Tinder users, they weren't just Hinge users, they used all of them mm-hmm. and they switched around depending on what was working for them and who they were looking to meet. And in terms of whether any one platform works better than another, I mean, in my study, I wasn't focused on a platform. So I ended up with success stories from all of them. I mean, I had people who met a spouse on Tinder, which is surprising to a lot of people who I tell. And I had people who met on other platforms um, as well. And so... I mean, I think it depends on the person and kind of what you're looking for, too. Yeah, fair enough. Can you tell us about a couple that you profiled that was really interesting to you and that maybe told you something you weren't expecting? Yeah, I mean, there was one person who I spoke with who was talking about the stigma of having met on Tinder, which I found really interesting because to me, as someone who studies this, I mean, one of the things that I've observed is that the stigma around meeting online has largely gone away and it's common and people are becoming accustomed to it. It's normalized. But I had people tell me that depending on the platform they used, it was still there. And particularly with Tinder, there was this expectation that if you were using it, you were looking for something casual, you were looking to hook up. And so the person who I spoke with was telling me they would tell their friends Mm -hmm. how they met, but they wouldn't tell like their family. They wouldn't tell older relatives who maybe weren't as familiar with it, who might have those sorts of expectations. And that was really interesting to me to hear people say that and to hear that they felt like this was a lesser relationship because that's so inconsistent with how I would view this and also what the literature would say. That's really interesting. So you also write about this for Psychology Today. So, I mean, you're the person who's plugged in on the dating online world, right? Can you tell us about what you think it means that so many people meet this way now, that the the way that we meet people has changed so much? Like, is this a shift, like a fundamental shift in love in relationships? I firmly believe that this is not just a passing trend, that this is an actual shift. And I say this as someone who's been studying this topic for over a decade and just what I've observed and how it's changed and become more normalized over time. I mean, in my study, I talked to some young people like in their early mid-20s 
who were telling me that all of their serious relationships in adulthood started online. Because mm -hmm. when you think about millennials and Gen Z, like they've grown up with this technology. They're used to social media. They're used to meeting people through the internet, through their cell phones. And so when I think about the fact that for them, this is what dating now looks like, yeah. I don't think it's going to change. And I see this becoming even more common in the future. Do you think there's something lost in that? I mean, from the traditional side? Or, or do you think it's pretty much the same way that people have always communicated? It's just on a different platform. I mean, I think you lose some, but you gain some mm. as well, right? Like, sure, there are problems with it. And there are things that maybe we might miss about the old-fashioned way of just walking up to somebody and introducing yourself. But at the same time, I think that what you gain, to me, there's just so much opportunity there. And it's something I'm really excited about in this space. Like, you gain access to so many more people than you would otherwise. It's so convenient for people. Like single moms who are looking to start dating again, like people with busy work schedules, like it just makes it so much easier for those people and gives them a chance to date in a way that I don't think they would have had before. All right, we'll leave it there. Liesl Sharabi is an assistant professor at ASU's Hugh Downs School of Human Communication and author of the Dating in the Digital Age column for Psychology Today. And finally, in education news. Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn says schools applying for safety grants have to prioritize armed police officers over school counselors. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd reports. Arizona's school safety grant program has been around since 2019, allowing schools to get state funds for counselors, social workers, or school resource officers. Horn says now the state will deny requests for new counselors from schools that don't already have armed officers. I also believe there should be a counselor at every school. I think that's important, but that's the second priority. The first priority is to have a police officer at every school so that if a maniac invades, there'll be someone to defend the kids. Schools are able to request funds for both, and Horn says renewals for existing social workers will be approved. He says his office is getting more reports of threats and students bringing guns to school. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.